Welcome to Pound the Rock, the score's excellent NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfon, and I'm joined by my excellent co-host, as always, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What's going on, Wolfon? I like the uh, I like the self affirmations to start the to start the morning. Our excellent podcast. Let's get this Listen, show on man, the road. Let's, being being self congratulatory sometimes I think is warranted, and we work hard at this. We almost made it through a long and difficult winter so you know let's let's celebrate ourselves but uh what we wanted to do on this episode today essentially we're about five weeks past the trade deadline now and there's a little bit less than a month remaining in the regular season and that felt like a good time to kind of check in on some of the big movers not just on the trade market, but also on the buyout market in a couple of cases, just to sort of see how they're fitting in with their new teams, what that might portend moving forward as we kind of enter the the stretch run and gear up for the playoffs, and just sort of take the temperature of the teams that made these big swings at the deadline. So we kind of did this in written form as well. We've got a piece going up on the app today, but it also felt like good fodder for the show. Some of them we've actually talked about in some depth already, and we can maybe gloss over those ones a little bit. But, I mean, we can start with KD, and that's one that we we talked about after his debut, and he only played two subsequent games and then hit the shelf with that ankle injury after slipping on the wet, the wet spot in warm-ups. So there's not a ton to add there, but I guess I'll ask you, Cash, since we spoke about him after his debut in that game that we both kind of decried as meaningless against the Charlotte Hornets. Anything that you saw from him that made you feel, I guess the way to look at it would be, let's assume he only plays those three games for the remainder of the regular season, which I don't necessarily think is going to be the case, but let's say that's all we have to go on. Because even if he does come back, it's not like there's going to be some huge sample to draw on when the playoffs start. Did you see anything in that three-game sample that made you feel one way or another about the Suns' ability to enter the playoffs with no continuity with him in the lineup and still be considered a serious threat to win the championship? Uh, yeah, what I saw in those three games would have me believe that if he's healthy going into the playoffs, they are the favorites to win the championship because I think, and you wrote about the this. favorites? And, dude, if he's healthy... You watched those three games. You wrote about KD and the piece we've got going up that is up right now uh, in the Score app in which we broke down the things we saw from the biggest acquisitions over the last five weeks um, in their new homes. He just seamlessly fit there. There didn't look like there was a lot of awkward, how do we fit him into the offense kind of stuff. Like He just slotted in there. Looked unstoppable himself. What, 27 points, like 80% true shooting, mm-hmm. while simultaneously making Devin Booker look pretty unstoppable with like Devin Booker now having luxuries he has never been afforded in his NBA career. And on the defensive end, I think I mentioned it too in that last episode we talked about KD in that meaningless, after that meaningless Hornets game. But like any concern I had about you know, maybe the explosive ability and and all that and the timing defensively coming off, you know, another knee injury, he looked no worse for wear now. Again, I guess I'm going to have the same question now that he's coming off an ankle injury after coming off a knee injury. But, you know, barring the injury itself having slowed him down, if you tell me he's back for the playoffs and he's 100% healthy or as close to 100% healthy as he can be at this point of his career and at this point of the season – yeah, I think they're the favorites because I think they can get to a level on offense no one else can. And they're good enough defensively. And KD brings enough defensively. I know you pointed out in the piece again, like the secondary rim protection that we both talked about going into the like his debut. I just think all the ingredients are there. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to win, obviously, because a lot can happen. One of them being injuries. Um, bad match, like whatever it is. Bad luck, bad matchup, bad break. Your foot is just barely on the three-point line instead of behind it. Like things things happen, but for my money, if he's healthy and they're healthy going into April or mid-April, I don't know who's beating this team four out of seven, man. 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the the teams at the top of the East are still pretty tough. And I do think that the ages of KD and Chris Paul, and like to, to your point about the injury, I think we've seen enough with the way that he's bounced back over the last few years to not really have any concerns about how he's going to look when he comes back from this ankle thing. Yeah, my concern would more be like another injury, not to, you know, put that out into the universe, but I'm saying I would be more concerned about a, a just a completely new injury than I would be about him being hobbled by the previous one. Yeah, so I think the 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 teams in the East can still give them problems. Not that the teams in the West can't, but I I I would not push back too hard on saying that they're the favorite to come out of the West, especially with the way that Denver's played recently. I don't know how much we want to read into that just given that they've sort of been on autopilot for the last couple of weeks and have basically had the number one seed in the west sewn up so maybe we'll give them a pass but even barring that sort of slump that they're in right now i think we were acknowledging even beforehand that there were certain limitations that could be exploited particularly by this sun's offense so yeah i mean 130 offensive rating with kd on the floor 137 offensive rating when him and Booker were on the floor together and they were elite defensively too. And, you know, you mentioned the secondary rim protection, like they were starting Cam Johnson or Torrey Craig at the four before KD got there. And that's just a big upgrade in terms of having that, that weak side rim protection and being able to do maybe a little bit more varied things with DeAndre Ayton as a result, you know, like being more willing maybe to bring him up to the level or switch him out, knowing that you have more of a safety net behind him. KD's still not a great rebounder for his size. And so that's, that's a concern that I have. And then there's like the fifth starter spot that I think I still kind of feel like is unresolved. Like I'm, I love Josh Okogie, but I don't know that by the second round of the playoffs, he's still going to be starting or even playing significant rotation minutes. Like it's just going to be a big challenge given his shooting limitations and what defenses are going to do and to dare him to take the shots and to force the ball pretty much away from anybody else on the floor and into his hands. So those are concerns that I still have and like the depth and all that stuff. But with the KD fit itself, uh, I don't think it could have gone any better or looked more encouraging in the three games that he did play. And something I, I did spotlight in that piece is like the Suns love to just run three man pick and roll actions, right? Like Spain pick and roll, or they'll run horn stuff with like multiple variations of like guys at the elbows or guys who are handling the ball and guys screening and coming off or screening and diving to the rim. Like they can just run a lot of different stuff out of that. And that, like if you're running three man actions, you're making use of all of the personnel that you have and like you're using all of the offensive talent to its full extent and katie just fits into that so perfectly because of what a malleable star he is and how dangerous he can be with or without the ball even something simple like in that that dallas game that they played this is actually something that frustrates me in general uh that is maybe a bit of a tangent but like Teams are sort of drilled in their defensive principles. And one of those things is like, okay, if a, a dangerous player like Devin Booker is running a side pick and roll, you're bringing nail help from the opposite wing to try and deter his progress and not just let him waltz into the paint. But when the guy standing on that opposite wing and that you're gapping off of to provide that nail help is Kevin Durant, you should maybe like reorient your priorities a little bit. But there were a couple times in that game where like Justin Holiday is guarding KD and, you know, the fact that Dallas had just, like, nobody really viable to throw at KD is another conversation. But, like, Holiday is coming over to provide that nail help against Booker running a pick and roll. And it's just an easy kick to KD for a three. And it's like, okay, I'm looking at the other guys on the floor. And it's like, Torrey Craig, DeAndre Ayton, and, like, Terrence Ross, maybe. And, and I'm thinking, like, man, maybe just trust somebody to provide that help, like, on the on the back line <laughs> instead. Yeah. Like, let this one go, even though, I mean, that's difficult because you are so drilled in those principles, but maybe come playoffs, defenses will be better prepared and, like, won't be gapping off of Kevin freaking Durant. But that's just, like, an illustration of the kind of bind that it puts you in as a defense. It's like, 
oh, okay, we're actually just not, we're going to hug up on KD and we're not going to provide that help at all. And then Devin Booker is waltzing into the paint and you sort of have a crisis on your hands anyway. So on top of just like the sheer shot making that is going to bury a lot of teams they play against, um, the, the different ways that they can use KD and the actions they can put him in and the way that they can maximize that talent with with that very structured offense that they have, I think is going to be really difficult to deal with. Absolutely. So the other former net that uh, changed teams around the deadline, Kyrie Irving. What have you seen from him in Dallas so far that makes you optimistic, pessimistic? Obviously, you know, kind of a bummer. Him and Luca are both on the shelf right now and team is being run by Josh Green and Jaden Hardy. <laughs> Not terribly, by the way. Those guys have, have kind of showed out. But what, what, what have you seen from Kyrie in Dallas? It's been basically what I expected. I think his first month in Dallas has been, in a word, predictable. Individually, brilliant. Averaging 27.5 points, 6.6 assists, shooting 58% from two-point range, 41% from deep, and 94% from the free throw line. And when Kyrie is on the court, with or without Luka, just when Kyrie's on the court, the Mavs have scored 123.9 points per 100 possessions. To put that in perspective, the Kings, who are on track to have the most efficient offense of all time, have an offensive rating of 118.6. But the other half of that predictable equation, and this isn't necessarily even a shot at Kyrie, is that the Mavs can't stop anybody, and they don't have the depth to, like, they, they don't even have the depth to withstand some games let alone to withstand long stretches, let alone to withstand a playoff series in my mind. So yeah, Kyrie has been that individually brilliant. And yet the Mavs are five and six when he plays and three and six in games, both he and Luca play. Now, some of that is just bad luck because they've lost a ton of close games. They've lost six games by five points or less just since Kyrie made his debut. Like it's been insane how many close games they lost. And you'd think if any team had an advantage in crunch time. It'd be a team with Kyrie Irving and Luka Doncic on it, but for whatever reason, it hasn't worked out that way. Luka has actually rarely had success, team success in crunch time over the last mm. couple of years, which is an interesting uh, nugget. But and anyway- also, I mean, sorry yeah. to interrupt. No, like, no, go I for it. Part of what you would hope that Kyrie's arrival would change is that maybe Luka would have more left in the tank at the end of games and wouldn't fade in crunch time the way that we've seen him do in the past yeah exactly and and for whatever reason that hasn't been the case but again look the positives are that like the offense is what you would imagine in terms of its potency with Kyrie added to the fold like there's been some awkward there have been some awkward moments like there was the end of that game I don't even remember who they were playing now when they, they played Minnesota, yeah, where Kyrie and Luca literally played hot potato with the potential game winner. And then I think Kyrie, or I can't remember who ended up throwing up kind of like a half prayer. So there are awkward moments like that, but that doesn't really concern me. Like those two guys, as talented as they are and as offensively gifted as they are, they'll figure that out. I'm not worried about that. But the fact that, you know, a team that was already bottom seven in defense traded their best defender in a deal that brought Kyrie Irving back and a team that wasn't exactly the deepest to begin with traded two guys for one, like both those things to me just mean this this team's not nearly good enough defensively or deep enough to withstand a long playoff run, maybe even to withstand one playoff series. Hell, the way things are going now, they're going to have to just get through the play-in. And then, cherry on top, you mentioned him and Luca. you know, just haven't played a lot together. They've played nine games out of the, I think, 15, 16 Kyrie's been there, but... Kyrie himself has missed already four games. And now he's like day-to-day with this foot thing that was supposed to keep him out one game. Now it's looking like it's going to keep him out a fourth straight game and for a fifth time in 16 games. So again, I use the word predictable. When he's on the court, he's been brilliant. Mm-hmm. The, t- the team is unstoppable offensively when he's out there, basically. But they still give up too many points for that unstoppable offense to make them an overall unstoppable team. He's already missing a a string of games with an injury the team doesn't look deep enough so yeah all of that to me I'd say is predictable yeah I guess I would just say the defense has actually been about league average when him and Luca are out there together and like you said the offense has been overwhelming I mean they got a plus 9.2 net rating when those two are both on the floor and it's barely worse than that when Kyrie plays without Luca like their offensive rating is actually slightly better when it's Kyrie by himself than it is with Kyrie and Luca together. And 
I mean, that has to be super encouraging just that they have that guy who can not only keep them afloat offensively with Luca on the bench, but keep them absolutely rip roaring offensively when Luca's on the bench. And if you're thinking about this as like a long-term play, which it's hard to do that ever with Kyrie because everything changes with him super fast, but you don't go out and make this trade if you're not planning on at least trying really hard to re-sign him in the off season. And so I would be more encouraged by that thinking about, you know, future seasons and how they could go and maybe they can build out that depth a little bit in the off season and hit the ground running next year. Even if it doesn't, you know, whether because those guys are injured or just like they don't have enough time together and they have to get through the play in like it doesn't work for them this year. But those numbers and how good they've been with those guys on the floor, how it's looked honestly too. Like I think the offensive fit has really been magnificent in terms of how they've played off of each other. You know, that that crunch time possession against Minnesota notwithstanding, which was great defense by Jaden McDaniels and Anthony Edwards too. Like we shouldn't yep. short change those guys uh, for that incredible possession. That aside, I don't I haven't really had any concerns about the fit at all. And I think a big thing with Kyrie is he really gives them a bit of juice in terms of like playing with more pace. And the Mavs are one of, if not the slowest teams in the league. Like they walk it up, they grind out possessions. Luca pounds the air out of it. Like we know this. And there's just a little bit more verve with Kyrie there. Like he gets them out in transition more. And I think that's where we've seen like the, the sort of two man connection between them hit the best. Like Luca throwing some outlets to Kyrie and and Kyrie just pushing the pace and kind of dragging Luca along with him, almost forcing him to speed up. And in terms of just like attacking off of the catch, whether it's just as a quick trigger jump shooter or somebody who is going to catch and go, I think it's just such a different dynamic than Dallas has had in its offense really at any other point in time. Like Brunson and I guess Dinwiddie, like those were the closest things they had, but it's it's not the same as Kyrie and what he's able to do when he's attacking an advantage yeah. Luca creates. So that that's all been quite encouraging to me. And like, yeah, the depth is what it is. The defense is what it is. And they're going to have to find a way to fix that in the future if indeed Kyrie is back. But, you know, I, I think offensively it's looked about as good as they could have hoped. The one thing that sort of struck me is we haven't seen much Luca Kyrie pick and roll like the inverted pick and roll that I thought could be so effective. And I still think it can be for Luca Kyrie screening for Luca. Exactly. You know, the way that he did for LeBron back in the day. And it sort of hit me why that may be not that it doesn't make sense, but why it isn't necessarily as effective as say Luca running a pick and roll with like Reggie Bullock or Tim Hardaway jr. Because, there's usually going to be a really good defender guarding Kyrie. Right. Like it, it, it kind of struck me in the Suns game where uh, Torrey Craig was guarding Luca and a Kogi was guarding Kyrie, but they had like, I don't remember who, you know, Damian Lee or something like Terrence Ross, somebody worse guarding Bullock. So it's like, okay, well that's the guy that you want to bring into the screening action. Like that's how you're guaranteed basically to get two on the ball. Otherwise they're switching themselves into a terrible matchup one way or another. You're creating a sizable advantage where, you know, the Suns would have been fine switching a Kogi onto Luca. And then you're not really creating that advantage. And like, you know, Tory Craig on Kyrie is like, whatever, that's fine. That's survivable too. You know, and you can think about that as like other like elite defensive teams that you might play against. Like if you're playing against the Bucks, it's probably like, you know, maybe Drew is going to be guarding Luca, and like Middleton's going to be guarding Kyrie. Like they're, they're switchable scenarios in that yeah. case where maybe you're actually not quite getting the benefit of that, even though Kyrie slipping out of a screen and flying into space is a lot more dangerous than Reggie Bullock doing. So the defender you're attacking really matters. So I think that's yeah. maybe why we haven't actually seen them engaging in as much two-man action as you would have thought. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And yeah, there there are like some diminishing returns there, even if the you know the thought of Kyrie slipping out of a screen is terrifying for a defense, if it also means actually ending up with an even better defender or an almost equal defender on Luka, yeah, there are diminishing returns there. So, I mean, look, hopefully those guys can both get healthy for the stretch run and we can just see what this team looks like at full strength and that'll give us a better indication of 
you know, what this could mean moving forward. But I, you know, I, I don't think there's much to quibble about in terms of the fit from what we've seen so far. Who, who do you want to go to next here? we got a bunch of names that we could run through. What's, what's been most interesting to you of the remaining guys? Uh, let's talk about the Lakers guys, man, because if I can't believe I'm saying this, but if LeBron can get healthy, these guys might give him a chance to make another run. Mm-hmm. Like it is unbelievable how hopeless the Lakers were like how such a hopeless situation suddenly became so hopeful for the Lakers where even with LeBron and AD on the court together, they weren't that great because the team just like woefully was woefully inept in so many areas. Literally they lacked enough quality NBA players. They had nowhere near enough shooting and they didn't have enough secondary creation behind LeBron. And in one fell swoop, or in a couple fell swoops, I guess, they addressed all of those needs. And they did it without, you know, getting the third star that people thought or wanted them to get. D'Angelo Russell's been a godsend. He's averaging about 19 points and six assists. He's been pretty efficient. Lakers have been five and three when he's in the lineup. And I know he's not like a pure point guard. And there have been a couple games maybe where he's you know, he gotten a little shot happy. But I, I think the Lakers have pretty much needed him to be that guy, especially with LeBron out. And I do have faith that when LeBron comes back, like it's LeBron James, I'm sure D'Angelo Russell will balance his offensive abilities a little bit more. Are you sure of that? Are you (laughs) 100% sure of that? Okay, I'm not 100% sure you're right. D'Lo is a different different cat, but... Again, it's LeBron. You know, I, I think it's a different scenario for him. And I'm, I do I'm think, being facetious. I'm sure yeah. he will. Yeah, he will. And also, you know, there's also something to leveraging the power of LeBron's playmaking too, right? That I'm sure will lead to some easier scoring opportunities for D'Angelo Russell. But I think other than like nitpicking maybe a couple times when he's been a little too shot happy, I actually do think he's provided a pretty good balance between getting his own and keeping the offense flowing and getting some other guys involved. Like I said, he's averaging about six assists a game in the eight games since he's been there. Um, And then I also think, obviously, between Russell and Malik Beasley, the Lakers just have a shooting that they didn't have before. And they're not going to blow anybody away with their shooting. Like, since Russell and Beasley debuted, the Lakers are 18th in three-pointers made per 100 possessions at 11.5. Now, that again, they're not blowing anyone away. But before the deadline, they were dead last in three-pointers made per 100 possessions at 10.1. So, you know, you're looking at four-plus extra points per game that they are getting from the three-point line that they weren't getting before. And even just the threat of those guys being out there, the threat of having more guys out there that will shoot from beyond is a godsend for AD, for LeBron, for their spacing in general, for their offense. Jared Vanderbilt has done what he does. He's brought defensive versatility as like a big forward. I don't know. I don't even know. What would you call him as a a defensively? A big, I guess, but versatile enough. A small big. Yeah, small big. Even offensively, he's like a low usage big that just does a lot of kind of the dirty work. Um, He can defend multiple positions, obviously. Leads the team in deflections and loose balls recovered since coming over. He's brought a ton of energy. I feel like he's almost been like, Josh Hart West in terms of the type of acquisition he was, where he's just really infused this team with a bunch of energy. And yeah, like you put it all together, even Hachimura, who, you know, he might not even really figure in their heavy rotation if they make the play in and then the playoffs. But even just Hachimura's ability to like create a shot for himself is something off the bench. That is a nice plus for them. So all in all, I think all these guys have stepped up. I think they've all been exactly what this team needed. And that's why you went from, like I said, earlier in the season when even when LeBron and AD were on the court or in the lineup together, you couldn't be sure what you were getting from the Lakers to now, even with LeBron out of the lineup, they've played very well and have actually improved their positioning in the that crazy West playoff race. So super encouraging what's happened with the Lakers since the deadline. Super encouraging the contributions of these three or four guys. And yeah, like I said, man, I think all of a sudden it's like, yo, you get LeBron back at the level he was still playing at and they're cooking with something. I agree. Uh, the stat that really jumps out to me is that since the deadline, this has been number one defense in the NBA. Wow. They were 20th 
before the deadline. And I'm not going to attribute that to Malik Beasley and D'Angelo Russell. Like that is Jared Vanderbilt's influence. And also AD coming back from injury and starting to play really, really well again. But yeah, like they're, they're clicking defensively. Offensive rebounding, another big area where Vanderbilt's really helped them. They were 23rd before the deadline. They've been 12th in offensive rebounding since then. 7th in rebounding rate overall, up from 16th beforehand. You mentioned the shooting and how big an impact that Russell and Beasley have had in that area. So it's just, they are a much more complete uh, and more balanced team now than they were before. And that's obvious. We knew that even, you know, on the day of the deadline when we saw the moves that they made. But I guess for me, what's been, I don't know if eye-opening was the right word, but what has been impressive to me is like the things that I spotlighted where I'm like, okay, they got all these guys and all of them address a, a particular need, but they all kind of take something off the table as well. They got a bunch of one-way players and how is that going to work? How are they going to structure their lineups? And so what's been impressive to me is how those guys have managed to contribute without really taking too much off the table. Malik Beasley, whose defense I thought was absolutely awful in Utah this season, has been, I think, quite a bit better defensively since coming to the Lakers. To me, still a complete mess off the ball, like just gets lost, doesn't know where he's supposed to rotate to, like that happens a lot, but giving way more effort on the ball and just like a little bit more alert in general. Vanderbilt, obviously just like a complete chaos agent. And offensively, he's managed to make it work with those hustle plays and the offensive rebounding and second chance points and things like that. So it's kind of like, okay, like Vanderbilt's done enough offensively. Beasley's done enough defensively. Russell's done enough at both ends. And the the concerns I had about the number of one-way players they acquired haven't borne out. Whether that changes in the play-in or the playoffs, you know, we'll have to wait and see. But so far, the returns have been very, very encouraging. And I... I'm really excited for the prospect of LeBron coming back and joining this much more complete and balanced team and seeing where they can go. Where are we going next? Uh, Should we talk about the return for Kevin Durant and how those guys and particularly Mikhail Bridges has played in Brooklyn so far? Because I definitely think we should. I got to be honest with you. I know that we saw a little bit of this in Phoenix this year when they were super banged up and they almost had no choice but to force feed on ball possessions to a guy who'd been, you know, primarily a, a play finisher in the previous three seasons. And one of the best in all of basketball, like one of the absolute best complimentary players, even though like we've started to see a little bit more of it from him in Phoenix this year, I did not think that Mikhail Bridges had this in him. Did you? Not this. No. I thought, here's what I thought. I thought even if he was given the rope to try doing this, I thought there would be like some major growing pains. And I'm not saying there hasn't been, but it's gone a lot smoother than I thought it would immediately. Like he's taken this role he's never had before on a consistent basis and, you know, like the self-creation work and stuff. And it's just gone a lot better, quicker than I would have imagined. You know, that's what I'll say. He's been like one of the most efficient self-creators in basketball yeah. since the trade. Um, 26 points on 63% true shooting. He's at 28% usage, which with the Suns this year, it was at 19%. And that itself was a career high by far. His career high usage coming into this season was 15%. So he has basically doubled that and sustained unbelievable efficiency He's shooting eight pull-up jumpers a game. That's star lead creator territory. You know, like not not up there with like the highest in the league, like your Donovan Mitchells and and Kyrie Irvings and Steph Curry's, but he's there with like Shea and De'Aaron Fox and Tyrese Halliburton and guys like that. And shooting like 50% on his mid-range pull-ups and like 45% on his pull-up threes. And when you watch him, it's like very fluid. He looks very comfortable and confident doing it which has been the big surprise to me. You know, it's like not just the quick trigger pull up threes, but like snaking his way to the elbow for those sort of comfortable, spacious mid-range jumpers, looking like an elongated Chris Paul, just absolute butter with that jumper. And then like the driving game has been there as well, right? So when defenses are kind of selling out to take away the jump shot, 
he's able to maintain that live dribble, get to the rim, finish at the rim, get to the, he's like doubled his free throw attempt rate. Like it's just been marvelous what he's been able to do as a self-creator and self-creator is an important distinction there because he's still not creating for anybody else. And that's like where the limitations, I guess, are still being exposed as far as thrusting him into this primary role. Like he is very clearly not there yet as a playmaker. Yeah. And I think that's fine. Like, again, I think he's already ahead of schedule in terms of where I thought he'd be in his first real taste of this kind of role. I think that playmaking will come. Like you see this with guys all the time, even guys that end up becoming stars and and offensive stars or whatever, that seeing some of the passing lanes that your newfound individual skills create is like the next step. You know, it doesn't happen right away. But on mm. but about the self-creation, I just want to throw these numbers out there. So these are per basketball references numbers. They might be off here or there, but I think for the most part, they, they paint a pretty good picture. His first four years in the league, Mikel Bridges is self-created, made two-pointers, okay? Rookie season, 28% of his two-pointers were self-created. His next three seasons, 24%, 24%, 24%. First half of this season in Phoenix, he took a big leap. We actually talked about it on the show, 39%. His first month and a little bit in Brooklyn, 58%. That kind of leap is very rare. And usually when a guy does have that kind of leap in necessary self-creation, the efficiency certainly doesn't stay, like doesn't remain. And to your point, the fact that he's been as efficient as he's been while becoming this like 26 point per game scorer who creates more than half of his shots by himself. It's just been super fun to watch, super encouraging. And I think, you know, the Nets, Sean Marks said it the day, like I know, you know, executives and coaches pump the tires of their players all the time, but I thought this was different when the day after the trade, when the Nets had their um, press conference about it and none of these guys had played a game yet, and Sean Marks was asked about Mikael Bridges. He, he didn't just say, oh, you know, we think we're getting a guy that maybe p- people have undervalued or we think we're getting a guy who can do more than he's shown so far. His exact quote or his quote was something along the lines of like, we're really excited to, uh, we think Mikael Bridges has been one of the most underrated players in the league right now. And we, we're excited to just, quite frankly, watch him explode here. Mm-hmm. Like even just him saying that before he had played a game for them shows you the kind of faith they had and and the fact that I guess they did see this as something he could do right away and he's definitely rewarded their faith I gotta wonder if you gave Sean Marks truth serum if he would say that he saw this coming because I don't know I mean this has been to to scale it up to the volume that he has it's really really impressive but I will say I mean the the Nets offense statistically has actually been a lot better with him on the bench and I think that kind of speaks to the fact that he isn't creating anything for anybody else you know like we're talking about about 22 used possessions per game for him between shots taken free throws and turnovers and 2.7 assists like that's just not a great ratio for a lead creator and ultimately a maybe that just might not be his final nba destiny i never would have expected it to be so that's totally fine if he's just like a secondary scorer, if that's the role that he settles into, then that's still great. Like, that's amazing, especially with the contract that he's on for, you know, the next three years after this one. Like, that is a home run for the Nets to have gotten him along with all of that draft capital. But also, like you mentioned, he is doing this for the first time, and we should not judge him too hastily for a skill that he has not really had an opportunity to try to develop until now he just has not had the ball in his hands to nearly this extent and I do think he's going to start to get better and probably get better at that really quickly so at the end of the day there's nothing really negative to say about what we've seen from him in Brooklyn so far and he's taken to this increased role with gusto and remarkable efficiency Um, why don't we take the break there and we can come back and talk about some of the lower profile additions that have still managed to make a pretty sizable impact. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. 
You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Cash, a few of these names left. You know, we've sort of handled the, the big trades. Although, you know, part of that Lakers trade and still a big name that was included in it uh, in what, what became a three-teamer was Mike Conley, who went to Minnesota. They essentially decided, you know, they could, they could have let the Lakers and Jazz just sort of work out that trade by themselves and let Conley be a Laker. Like, they didn't need to get themselves involved, but they wedged themselves into those talks because they wanted out of the D'Angelo Russell business and they wanted in the Mike Conley business, even though he's like eight and a half years older than Russell and certainly not nearly the scorer that Russell is at this point. They decided that what Conley brought was going to be more important to the structure of their team, to addressing the particular needs of their team. And I thought it was a really interesting decision. I think the results have been very mixed so far, but probably leaning toward the positive side ever so slightly. Uh, what, what have you seen from Conley in Minnesota so far? What do you think about the fit? How do you, how do you think it's going? I'm with you where I, you know, I, I don't think it's a home run, but I, I understood the decision and I, even in watching it still do, I think they very much kind of needed an adult in the room uh-huh. um, for lack of a, a better term. And I do think, D'Angelo Russell f- makes a lot more sense for the Lakers than Mike Conley would have, right? Like if you're, I'm not that they had to pick between them, but I'm just saying with LeBron but, there, do you think, do you think that's still true? No, I still do because I do think there's a, there's a level of like, whether you want to call it like an offensive ceiling, the explosive type of scoring bursts that Russell is capable of that. I do think that Lakers team still needed, even with LeBron, I still think that team needed it. Whereas the Wolves, like if you imagine them at full strength and Cat is supposed to be coming back, I think next week, I think with between Cat and Edwards and what they've got going there, I I think they more needed kind of like the veteran table setter, the veteran floor general, than they needed a D'Lo. And I do think Conley's been fine from that perspective. Like I look his overall impact is not going to be what it was at his best or even a couple of years ago, but I do think he can fill the role they need him to fill. And that is keeping things organized on the offensive end, making sure the ball goes where it needs to go. Like the, he's in a situation where he can play that role, like the role that perfectly suits him at this point in his career. And I am really interested to see what it looks like when cat comes back, because I think he'll make sure that offense hums in a way it's supposed to hum. So a couple things. And this speaks to the idea of the grown-up in the room and just having the, the steady hand and the floor general. Before the trade, the Wolves were 28th in turnover rate. They were just kicking it around. Just a careless team with the ball. That was a big problem. Since the trade, they're up to 18th. And with Conley on the floor, their turnover rate would be the sixth lowest in the league. Wow. So. I think that that has been a big part of it. Just like him taking good care of the basketball, you know he's going to make good decisions. Even if you get frustrated some of the time by his passivity, and man, there have been some games where he just disappears from the offense. Just seems very content to to fade into the background. And it's like, well, man, like, yeah, maybe you could use D'Angelo Russell's assertiveness and scoring punch right now. But at the end of the day, you know, kind of looking at the big picture, I do think that sort of caretaker role, a guy who is going to make good decisions and put other players in position to succeed, call his own number when it's warranted. But apart from that, just sort of stay out of the way. His timing with Gobert in the two-man game, I think has really shown through a lot of the time. Like you can tell they honed that in Utah. He's very familiar with Gobert. He is very familiar with his game. Yes. Like the, you know, the, the <laughs> he does not owe him an apology. Yes, exactly. Um, so I think like that that has been evident. And I also think even at this stage of his career where he is obviously in a very diminished state as a 35-year-old small point guard, 
still a much tougher on-ball defender than D'Angelo Russell. Oh, yeah. And I think that's made a difference, too. And so, like, you take all this together, and the Wolves are, frankly, way better so far with Conley on the floor than they were with Russell on the floor. Yep. Even offensively. That's before Cats played a game yet. Right. Even offensively, where Conley is, like, working on a career-low usage rate of 16%, and even with him, you know, scoring 10.5 points a game, and, like I said, just sort of fading into the background a lot of the time, the Wolves' offensive rating with him on the floor is, like, close to 117. It's, like, four points per 100 possessions better than it was when Russell was on the floor. So the the results kind of speak to the fact that despite individually him not offering the same kind of scoring pop, he's facilitating more efficient offense for the Wolves as a whole. And so in that sense, the gambit has paid off. Long-term, you know, maybe you can still quibble about the decision because it gives them a shorter runway. But if they weren't going to re-sign Russell anyway, then, you know, I guess this kind of made sense because Conley has an extra year left on his deal. They can kick the can down the road. And I don't know, from there, just given the limited resources available to them, I don't really know how they solve that starting point guard spot long-term. But in the short term, I do think that they made their team better and that Conley is a better fit. And I think, like, to your point about Towns coming back soon, that's going to be the big test of, like, his influence and how much his sort of floor general tendencies can actually help. Because it looked janky as hell when Towns was healthy early in the season. The offensive fit was clunky, to say the least. And maybe Conley is the man for the job. You know, maybe he can pull the pieces together in a way that D'Lo could not. So... That yeah. is what I'm really looking forward to seeing is is whether he can make that work. I'm going to need to see the Carl uh, Anthony Towns x-rays before he comes back to see if he has, in fact, grown a dog in him. <laughs> I mean, I and think then, you already know the answer to that question. So Yeah, and the, the answer, I think, is uh, is not a good one. Anyway, uh, can I talk about Yak Pertle, or did you have anything else to say about Mike Conley in the world? No, please, talk about Yak. Yeah, so I think... Uh, how swimmingly it's gone with Jakob Pertl in the lineup has only magnified how glaring a need the Raptors had for a real NBA big man, whether it was true seven footer or not, but like just a true center, a real big man, because wow, has Jakob Pertl fit like a glove. To that cool. point, just, just like a really neat, quick way to illustrate it. The three players with the best on-off splits on the team this year, in order, Jakob Pertl, Christian Coloco, and Kem Birch. There you so go. So if that doesn't scream, the Raptors make sense with the center on the floor and really don't yeah. any other way, then I don't know what does. Like That is just a perfect encapsulation of how much better they have been all year with any center on the floor, even one as raw as Christian Coloco. Yeah, well put. In terms of Yak, I think like maybe you can if, if there's one thing you can nitpick and it's not about him not playing well, but you can say, well, you know, when he's out there with another non-shooter, it can cramp lineups, and that's fair. That's something you can talk about. But he's been so good that he has just made things work and made things fit on both ends. Defensively, as we talked about after the deadline, the insurance of his rim protection allows the Raptors more leeway when pressuring the ball as aggressively as Nick Nurse wants them to. I think he's moving his feet really well, and it looks like he's regained the step he had seemed to have lost in San Antonio earlier this season. Maybe just playing for something again has rejuvenated him on that end. Because, like, yeah, I, I think he's moving his feet well when he is forced to defend in space against smaller players. In 397 minutes with Pirtle on the court, the Raptors have defended like the best defense in the league. 106.7 points allowed for 100 possessions. I believe Milwaukee's top-ranked defense is like 108 or 109 or something like that. And then on offense, his screening, his playmaking vision, uh, whether on the short roll or from the elbows and the high post, his interior efficiency, they've given the Raptors an element, and you can even call it like a more traditional element, that they just have not had the last couple years. And no one has benefited from this more than Fred Van Vliet, who looks completely rejuvenated playing alongside a big man who can consistently get him open shots strictly with his screening. And then another thing, and this is something I've talked about when we've made appearances on uh, the Raptors show with Will Lou and Alex Wong as well, is that Pirtle just has this heady ability to move into the right space. Like it's one thing to just be a great 
screen and roll guy, which he is, but he always just seems to be moving into the right space. Like even when he's not on the ball or involved in an action, he'll make like a little three foot cut to come catch a ball. And what that does is keep a possession humming because I don't know, like Pascal Siakam has been trapped or has picked up his dribble or Fred Van Vliet's got a, a much bigger guy in him and can't see over him. And now it's like, well, this ra- we've seen this before. This Raptors possession is going to grind to a halt. They're going to get a shot up with like one second on the clock. And instead, oh wait, Jakob Pertl just made this like weird little cut and now they found him as a little outlet. And now he's kind of running an action on the other side. of It's just these little things that he does on offense that I think go unnoticed that are really good. But anyway, Fred Van Vliet, before the trade deadline, had an effective field goal percentage of 48.6%. With Jakob Pertl off the court since the trade deadline, it's 39.1%. In 276 minutes with Jakob Pertl on the court, Fred Van Vliet's effective field goal percentage, 59.4%. Small sample size theater, yes. I can't chalk it all up to Jakob Pertl, but I do think a big, big part of that really is just the fact that a, a real big man who is setting some of the best screens in the league, getting Fred open, giving him more space to attack if he chooses to, and also giving him the option of a good finisher on the roll, a playmaker on the roll. Defenses have to play Fred a little more honest. Like all of that plays into that. And that's why he's been so much better since the deadline. And then the last thing is just that, yeah, uh, Jakob Pertl has more screen assists in 14 games with the Raptors than the second, third, and fourth place Raptors combined during that time. The only frustrating part, as we've talked about before, is just why didn't they do this sooner? Yeah, I, I would guess that it has something to do with San Antonio's asking price and yeah. what it was, you know, in the off season or early in the season compared to what it was at the deadline. But uh, we would probably be talking about a much different Raptors team in a much different position right now if they had made this move earlier in the year, and even when they made it despite us coming on, you know, our post deadline show and kind of ripping them for the deadline they had, we both acknowledge that this move was going to make them a lot better. I think I said at the time, like the Raptors are probably going to the playoffs. It was more about the position that it put them in going into the summer for a team that even if they make it through the play in which I kind of expect them to at this point, they're probably going to be one and done in the playoffs. Not probably. I mean, they're almost certainly going to be one and done in the playoffs. And then they're going into an offseason where three of their six best players are going to be unrestricted free agents. And that's just one year away from two more of their top six players being unrestricted free agents in OG and Pascal. So it's still kind of a bind that they put themselves in. And I don't know how they get themselves out of it. But I think they've been vindicated in targeting Pirtle because he like you said, has made their team make a whole lot more sense. You know, the big problem before is like they were playing centerless, but not really getting the benefits that you would typically associate with doing so. Like they didn't have five out spacing, like even playing small, quote unquote, because they were huge at the wing positions, but like small at center, even playing that way, they still had no spacing on the floor. So it's not like getting, you know, a traditional center has cramped their spacing any more than it was already cramped. If anything, it's freed things up because, as you mentioned, screening is a great way to create space. And that's something that Pirtle has really opened up for them. And then another thing, and this was really hit home for me in their game last night against OKC. He allows them to leverage that size at the wing positions in a way that they couldn't before. Because in that game, like they had size mismatches all over the floor and they just hammered them all night. And Pirtle's interior passing his ability to like whether they're like running a delay set or just him catching the ball at the elbow, his passing and his like ability to see over the top allows them to take advantage of those mismatches because he's hitting them, you know, whether it's on cuts or whether he's finding them with those deep seals, he's making sure that they're actually getting the benefit of those size mismatches and taking advantage of them. So that's been big and I think that will continue to just make their offense look more functional and you mentioned what he's done for their defense and just they're pressuring the ball and now they actually have somebody to protect the rim behind that ball pressure if it gets beat which it very often does they're having to send fewer double teams and help less on drives it's just made the whole thing work a whole lot better and if they could figure out their bench situation they would actually maybe start to look like a relatively 
dangerous team. But you hear about glue guys a lot. And I think Pirtle is a glue guy in the truest sense. And like to take it back to what you were saying about those little random cuts that he makes to be a release valve, like to to flash into space and make himself a target for a guy who might have dribbled himself into a corner and then to keep the possession moving from there because of his ability to swing the ball, get it moving side to side, reverse it, whatever. He glues possessions together. You know, that is what he does. He stitches these possessions together that would be totally disjointed without him there in the middle to connect them. So in spite of the fact that I didn't love the trade at the time, and I'm sp- I still have big questions about the Raptors looking ahead, that addition has just worked like gangbusters. And I mentioned this on the show that we did with Will yesterday, but per cleaning the glass, they have been 30 points per 100 possessions better with him on the floor since acquiring him. So too bad the trade didn't happen in October. He might have been the MVP. <laughs> um, all right. Where do you want to go next here? Why don't you talk to me about Josh Hart? Another under-the-radar addition that has just proven to have massive, massive impact. Uh, The Knicks won their first nine games with Hart in the lineup. It's too bad this trade didn't happen in October. He might have won MVP. (laughs) There you go. Hart and Pirtle duking it out for the NBA's top honors. I, I wonder if that discourse would have been as toxic as the MVP discourse that we have today. But uh, just a perfect marriage of player and system. And the best way that I can describe it is like Hart has come in, addressed a couple of specific needs and amplified a couple of specific strengths. Like the big one for me is they play in transition way more when he's on the floor, especially when him and Grimes are out there together. They're like basically a hundredth percentile transition frequency team when those two guys play. And they create way more turnovers. And that was a big problem for their defense for most of the season until that trade happened. Like for as physical as Tom Thibodeau wants them to be, for as much as they send a bunch of guys crashing into the paint, they actually didn't force a lot of turnovers. And Hart has really helped them amplify that. And that in turn is helping to fuel their transition offense, which I would say like they're, they have more pace this season in the half court than they've had in the last couple of years. And that's been good to see, but they, still weren't like playing in the open floor often enough. And now with Hart there, they're doing that. He's not going to keep shooting 56% from three. And when he no longer is, maybe there will be more frustration about the fact that he has basically been the same very passive offensive player, like super low usage, not a particularly willing shooter. But right now it's very hard to to quibble about any of that, given how much he has contributed in other areas. And, um, Oh yeah, rebounding. Rebounding is the other way where like they were a pretty poor defensive rebounding team. He's made them better. They were an amazing offensive rebounding team. He's made them even better. They've rebounded almost 35% of their own misses when he's on the floor. That is just ridiculous. And I, I just I've loved his fit there. It's been inarguable how much of an impact he's had. Yeah, I have nothing to add to that. We both love Josh Hart. I think it was a, a great pickup for the Knicks. Uh, you want me to give you 30 seconds on Russell Westbrook? <laughs> I, we can go more than 30 seconds on Russell Westbrook. I think, oh, it's no, been a really, I think it's been a really interesting addition. I do too. And I think, look, I, I put this in uh, in the piece we wrote, but I do think, yeah, it hasn't been all bad. He has actually shot the ball well from like floater range and the short mid-range area and has definitely been much, much, much more efficient than he was when he played for the team down the hall on the Lakers and the Clippers, by the way, are also winning his minutes pretty handily. But I still do think that some of the usual negatives are still there. I still think the overall impact doesn't match the, the box score production. You look at his numbers like, ah, oh, he's averaging like 13 points and seven assists on a little under league average true shooting and slightly under 30 minutes a game. Pretty good. But Still, you look at the way teams guard him off the ball because he doesn't... He's doing a little bit more off the ball. Guard him off the ball? Exactly. Is that what you said? I'd say he's doing a little bit more off the ball with the Clippers. And by that, I mean he went from doing nothing at all to maybe doing something off the ball once every 10 possessions. So uh, technically, that's a 10%. Setting more ball screens. Yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. He's doing a little bit more off the ball. Don't think he's doing enough, and he's yeah, just not being guarded off. It doesn't scare opposing defenses when the ball, defenses when the ball is not in his hands, and when the ball is in his hands, the risk of a turnover has never been greater. 
a guy with already concerning turnover rates that are usually like in the mid to high teens is turning the ball over 23% of the time as a Clipper. That is, is that bad? Oh my God. So the only two players in the league who have played a, f- no, not even a thousand minutes. You can like filter it all the way down to like 500 minutes. The only two players in the league turning the ball over more frequently than Russell Westbrook by turnover rate are Ben Simmons and Draymond Green. Now, the thing with those guys is they are low usage players who shine defensively. And I know in Simmons' case, like he doesn't even play that much. But like in Westbrook's case, he's very much a high usage player who turns the ball over a ton. And he's a defensive liability. That is a very tough combination to overcome if you want to play a guy and wing big in the playoffs, which is why you'll notice that the last few games when it's gone to crunch time, Terrence Mann and Eric Gordon are in there instead of Russ. And I think that's a correct decision by Ty Lue. And I think, look, if Russ plays ball with this strategy, then I think it can work. If he, like right now he's still starting, so whatever. But I'm saying like if he is more of kind of this reserve who brings some chaos off the bench, who's been, you know, a little bit more efficient than he was as a Laker, spreading the ball around, you know, Again, creating some chaos, getting up and down a transition, finishing the way he's actually finished in and around the rim from the short mid-range area, floater range. I think it can work, but there have to be some parameters here and there has to be like a very strict setting where it's like, look, unless you've really got it going and you're having one of those rust games that you still get every couple of weeks, you're probably not finishing games. I he maybe shouldn't even be starting them, but that's the thing. So I, I I don't think it's all been bad. I think there have been ways where it's been promising, but I still think on the whole, the negatives that come with Russ and that he has still shown as a Clipper are really tough to overcome for a guy that has the ball in his hands that much if you want to win in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, I guess you would hope just because they didn't give anything up to get him. You know, they just signed him as a buyout guy, so they won't feel beholden to him. And if they need to sit him down for an important stretch or an entire game, then they'll just be willing to do that and say, this isn't your matchup or this isn't your night and we're going to go in a different direction and they have the depth to do that. I think there are some interesting ways in which he's helped. The obvious one, and we've mentioned this with a lot of these guys now, but just pace, man. Every team Russ goes to plays super fast. And with the Clippers, another one of these teams that likes to walk it up and doesn't play in transition maybe often enough. Uh, Russ is in the 100th percentile in points added in transition when he's on the floor versus off since wow, becoming a great stat. So he, he is definitely helping them in that regard. They're playing in transition way more often when he's on the floor and they're scoring way more effectively in transition when he's part of the mix. And I think that's been a nice, you know, for lack of a better term, change of pace for them. And then the offensive rebounding, like another one of these teams that kind of, I wouldn't say they punt on the offensive glass. They have a couple of guys that they let crash, you know, notably Zubach, but Russ just gives them another dimension in that respect as well, in terms of creating second chances. He's been all over the offensive boards. I do think, you know, in spite of the turnover issues that you mentioned, his passing is still a net plus addition Mm -hmm. for a team that was sorely lacking it. All those have been positives. I don't know that they fully outweigh the negatives like they have so far. They've been better with him on the court. But, you know, big picture, obviously the the way that he cripples their spacing because it gets completely ignored when he doesn't have the ball. The number of long twos that he is still willing to take and the just decision-making in general are, are going to be concerns. And then, you know, the other thing is part of the theory you would have expected when they got him was like, they like to play small and go five out a lot. Russ will make sense with those lineups. He'll have all this space to drive into, and that will make the decision-making tree for him a little bit simpler. They don't do that anymore. They got Mason Plumley, and now they play a traditional center pretty much for all 48 minutes. And so Russ hasn't even had an opportunity to play with those, those smaller, spacier groups. And... That's not a panacea. Like, Russ is actually very good at using role men. So that might be a more beneficial situation for him at the end of the day. But I think it would be interesting to, like, see him get some run with some of those smaller, like, five-out groups 
and just see because like I know he's not the same player that he was in Houston like three years ago, but when he was playing in that micro ball rocket system, he was destroying teams in space. And yeah. uh, we, we just haven't really seen it. Yep, that's fair. Um, okay, so a few other guys that we didn't get around to writing about, but that have still been, you know, interesting additions that have made an impact. What are your thoughts on Jay Crowder in Milwaukee so far? I think it's been good. I think, uh, you know, one of the things I talked about leading up to the deadline, I think after it too, was just given how long it had been since he played, we weren't really sure what he'd look like, how long it would take him to kind of settle in. But I think he settled in pretty quickly. I think you're seeing the benefit of, you know, having another guy who can take on some of the toughest defensive assignments, who kind of just knows what he's doing out there. Obviously, he can still, I'm not sure what the shooting numbers are, but a guy that can still hit a three. They're really good. <laughs> really yeah, good. I know. So, so, like, guy that can still hit a three, take on some of the toughest defensive matchups, very much like a playoff caliber rotation guy. I think mm-hmm. it's gone well. I think you couldn't have asked for much more from him in the first month he's been back after the long layoff. So, no, I think a, a definitely a net positive addition to the team that we both picked to win the championship. Yeah, I, th- I think he's been really good. Um, mm-hmm. I, not as quick defensively as he used to be. Not okay. that like quickness was ever his big strong suit, and like ultimately he's going to be playing the four and guarding power forwards. But guys kind of target him on switches, I feel like, more often than they used to. And he's had a tough time containing ball handlers, I think. That's the one thing I've seen where I'm like, ah, I don't know. You know, come playoff time, is he going to be able to to stay on the floor and hang? But everything else has looked very, very solid. And yeah, he's shooting, you know, close to 40% from three and, and has looked very stout in, you know, more manageable defensive assignments. I think he's a guy that they are going to trust come playoff time. He's a guy that's going to help them fill out some Giannis at center lineups if or when they go to those. And uh, I think so far it's been pretty positive. I-, I talked a little bit before about Sadiq Bay in Atlanta and just how I like the decisiveness that he brings to a team whose role players are often indecisive. I'm thinking maybe about DeAndre Hunter more than anybody else where it's not super rapid, like shoot pass attack decisions. And he's sort of, when he gets a kick out, he wants to dribble it for a while and feel the ball before he decides what to do. It's a little bit more ponderous. Whereas with Sadiq Bay, like those decisions are usually coming pretty instantaneously. And offensively, I think that fit has actually looked great. Um, you know, they're running him off of like ghost flare actions where he'll ghost to screen and then get a flare and then he'll get open for three that way. He's getting to the rim a bunch. He's shooting 48% from deep. Uh, his usage rate is actually way, way down from where it was in Detroit, which I guess you'd probably expect. But his efficiency as a result is way, way up. All positive on offense. He's a very bad defender. Like, I don't yeah, even... He, maybe it's just like I didn't watch enough Pistons before or it just didn't stand out because the Pistons were a mess defensively all over the floor. But I, it's really been spotlighted for me his stint in Atlanta, just how little lateral mobility he has. Like guys, he he is a turnstile, man. Guys just blow by him without much. He's supposed to be a three and D or was supposed to be a three and D guy. But like right now, very much looks like a three and three guy. (laughs) He has not shown the defensive acumen that he is supposed to have. Yeah. Uh, And I mean, sometimes like you look at guys like that and they just sort of have the body that makes you think that they should be a good defender, but there's a lot, more that goes into it and you know like the ability to move your feet laterally and swivel your hips and things like that that allow you to stay square to a driver and not open up and not let them get past you or things that he just hasn't whether he's not capable of doing them or just hasn't mastered them yet like they are definitely not there and so the the defense is going to be an issue and something they will have to consider when thinking about his restricted free agency this coming summer or, yeah. Sorry, still, is he I, is he is he going to be an RFA or he's just extension no, eligible? Uh, he's extension eligible. They still have him under contract for next right, year right, right. for the last year of his rookie contract, which is why I thought it was such a good buy low addition for the yeah. Hawks to take a flyer on him. But wasn't I think there was some rumblings that the reason the Pistons traded him was that he was 
going to demand some unreasonable number right. in he, those extension negotiations. He probably will, but the Hawks don't have to give it to him. They'll have him yeah. under contract next year for like $4 million. I think. Yeah, I think it's fine. Anyone else uh, that you want to talk about? The, the other three I have written here, Matisse Thybul, very quietly shooting 42% on 4.23 point attempts per game as, as a trailblazer and has defended really well. They've actually been quite good with him on the floor. So uh, he is going to be an RFA. And I think that the Blazers will probably do what they can to keep him because they need as much of a defensive infrastructure as they can get. And if he keeps shooting it relatively well from three, then he could be a pretty good piece for them long-term. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Um, Wiseman? I really yeah, I was going to say Wiseman, I guess it's been interesting just, just to see him play this much, but I don't know. I, I haven't seen anything from him that uh, has given me <laughs> too much hope. He looks, I'd more say comfortable, been... he looks more comfortable as like a pick and roll finisher to me yeah. than he did before. Maybe that's just more reps. That's what I was um, going to say. I think with honestly, the most as simplistic as it sounds, the most promising thing I've seen from James Wiseman is just that he's playing like yeah. regular NBA minutes. I think he needs those under his belt. Even if it ends up looking awful for the rest of this season, I think just having those minutes under his belt going into next year is a positive in its own right. For sure. The defense is still a bit of a mess. Like that's... Yeah. That's that's where he really has to clean things up. I still think that he has the potential to do it, but uh, like that that feel has got to come around sometime soon. Very under the radar, but Jordan Nawara with the Pacers, a player that I was like very down on in Milwaukee, just didn't think he made good decisions, was super inefficient as a scorer. He's looked like a different player in Indiana, frankly. And like one illustration of that is like he was shooting 38% from two point range with Milwaukee. And that's up to 59% with Indiana, who, by the way, Indiana just smoked the Bucks last night. Dude, without Tyrese Halliburton. I was thinking about this. Like when you consider how competitive the Pacers have been this season with Halliburton in the lineup, the fact that they did end up extending Turner, you look at the way the Magic you know, how frisky they've been the last few months and you maybe add another high pick to that team. you like start projecting forward. Like think of how good the East is this year. And I know it's top heavy, but still how good and how deep it is. And then like, think about next year when teams like Indiana and Orlando, not that they're going to be great, but I think we'll be even more ready to compete and like stay in the playing race longer. Like, do you think the East is good this year? It might be a full on bloodbath next year. Yeah. Although, I mean, there will be some teams. Yeah, teams fall that, out too. Yeah, that fall out. Anyway, yeah, I think I think Nuora has been good there, and it's interesting to me because he fits the archetype of the type of player they need, right? Like they they have a really good backcourt situation, and obviously you know Miles Turner anchoring things in center, but they don't have a lot in between, and he's just like six eight wing who can shoot it a bit. Like his defense is still pretty sketchy, but like has the size and like the the rough outline of the type of player they would need. So maybe he's a long-term answer there, but I think we can cap it there. That's, you know, something like 12 players that changed teams that uh, we checked in on. And it's going to be interesting to see how they continue to impact their teams for the rest of the season. But uh, we're going to end it there. Cash, you got to go. So unfortunately we're going to skip out on make or miss and we're going to skip out on a fan shout out this week. But I believe we have a couple banks, so we will get to those on future episodes. And um, we will be back, hopefully, with two episodes next week. I can't promise that, but we are going to try. So I'm going to let Cash get out of here, and I'm going to take us out. Thank you for listening. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Pound the Rock. (laughs) 